Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast Q&A. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, making sure to check our predispositions at the door that we can honestly look at Scripture and compare Scripture to Scripture, rightly dividing the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. This Q&A is connected to our last teaching. We were in the book of Luke, and we looked at the place where Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God, God's. And then he said, Whose image is on the coin? And then we talked about whose image was on us. If the image on the coin is Caesar, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But the image on us is God, and so we render our lives to God. That's the right and the proper thing to do. So the question that we had, and I didn't really have a lot of time in the study to be able to cover the image of God and what that really means. So the question that we had for this study, this Q&A to start off with is, what is or what does it mean to be made in the image of God? So I want to take a look at some scriptures. There's three of them that speak of the image of God, and we can kind of get the idea as to what it means. Let's look at them. So first of all, we have Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. A few things that are important here. Number one, male and female, every man and child, every man and woman are created in the image of God. Some in the past have struggled with perhaps it's the idea that we are a body, soul, and spirit, and my body is not my soul, and my soul is not my spirit, but my body is Robert, my soul is Robert, and my spirit is Robert. And so they connect that to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, but all three of them together make up God. There are some problems with this, and cults have keyed off of this triune aspect of man, and there's a lot of people that have objections to it. I don't know that I object that much to it. I understand why they want to move away from the idea of a tri, tri of, of a man being made out of those three different parts. But it may be that in us, we have a picture of what God is and maybe one of the best understandings that God is complex, which we find in this passage. Let us make man in our own image. Who's the us? Who's the are? Some say it's a heavenly council that God has put together to rule over the world. But, but the heavenly council, and I, I would lean towards there being one, can't create. So let us create man in our own image is not just making man in a spirit, because that would be the idea. There are these spirits on this council, and man is made in the image of a spirit. It's more than that, because God is the one who creates, and then he makes us in his image. That is, when you look at a human, you are seeing an image of God, certainly not exactly like him, but we're able to show love, we're able to show kindness, we're able to do good in a world that is fraught with suffering and terrible things happening. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And we're able to enter in like God does and be able to comfort people and bring some light into what is going to be in every life difficulty. Job said, as the sparks fly upward, man was made for trouble. And so we, being in the image of God, are able to interact with people. Also, we're responsible to others because in everyone, not just Christians, but in everyone who was created, there is the image of God. This is really important to understand. Look at what it says in Genesis 9, 6. With it, we talk about the tongue, right? This is the section on the tongue. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God or in the image of God. In other words, every person that's out there, whether Christian or not, 
has been made in the image of God and therefore deserves respect from us. That when we're cursing someone, we're cursing someone made in the image of God. And then it also talks in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made them. So the idea of killing someone is particularly offensive because they are made in the image of God. Animals are not made in God's image. They cannot choose the way we can to love, choose like we can to be able to do good. When we, when we decide we're going hunting, we make a decision why we want to do it. There's right and wrong reasons to do it, but we make a decision to do it. When an animal who's a predator hunts, he hunts because he's hungry. He hunts because there's an opportunity. He hunts because that's his nature. We are made different than that. And we are supposed to be a picture of God in the world. Some have likened it to when we look at people, we're seeing an image of God. Now, like on the coin that had the image of Caesar, it wasn't a perfect likeness of Caesar. You weren't looking at the coin and going, oh, I know Caesar, I see his image. But we have something in us that shows people who God is. And I think that's the love and the kindness that is inside of us. I also, we have been made eternal. We've been made with a mind. We've been made with a knowledge of morals. We know right or wrong. That's why cultures that are even isolated still have a system of right and wrong. And I think all of these things speak about being made in God's image. And once we come to Christ, then we shine for him. Then people are to see Christ in us. We can do a good job now of being that image bearer for God and letting people around us see who God is. And may we do that really, really well. Because sometimes as Christians, we don't do it really well. And that's unfortunate that that's what we do. Instead of being that image of God that we are made to be, and there's a way in which everyone is, but instead of doing it, we become selfish, we become prideful, we want to show people how spiritual we are. All of these are a problem when it comes to living for Christ. So what is, the, what is being made in the image of God? That in you is something that reflects God. God's image is inside of every person. And we are to walk in love and be light in the middle of a troubled and suffering world, knowing that the sufferings of this world cannot be compared to the glory that is yet to be given to us. So welcome to our Truth Quest podcast Q&A. If you have a question about our study last Saturday, you can, and, and Sunday, you can submit it. Uh, and next Saturday, we have our, our next Q&A, and it's gonna be connected to the teaching that we have tonight out of Galatians. We're looking at the passage, one of them anyway, where it says that we cry out, Abba, Father. What does Abba, Father mean? So that'll be our study tonight, uh, starting at six o'clock online, six o'clock at the East Campus, 715 at the West Campus, if you're here in Tucson. So whatever question you might have, we would love to hear it now. You can ask any question uh, on apologetics, on prophecy. Um, you can ask hard questions. I'm not saying that I've got all the answers to your questions. I'm simply saying, Let's take a look at it. Let's see what the Bible has to say. Sometimes when passages are brought up, we bring it up and we have to look, look over it to be able to determine whether we can figure out what the Bible is saying. Our desire is that we would rightly divide God's word. We would be like the Bereans, receive with joy, but study the scriptures to make sure these things are so, so we don't end up believing the wrong thing. So I want to thank you guys for joining us. And if you've joined us for the very first time, then we ask that you would write the word question or put a question mark or a Q in front of your question so I can see that it's a question and then write your question out, reread it a couple of times so it makes sense. And if you're going to use a phrase of scripture, then give me the phrase so that I can put it up on the screen. Give me the actual address. I can put it up on the screen and read it. And if I don't understand your question, if it's if I read it and I don't understand it, Rather than trying to take a stab at it and getting it wrong, I'm just going to pass and maybe you can rephrase it again in a way that is easier to understand. All right. So great to have you guys here. Good to see you. I'm going to go back and get our first question here today, uh, which is not Andre, which is surprising. It is Psychman45. Psychman, good to see you. Good to have you here with us today. 
Psychman says baptismal regeneration was to have some credibility. Would there, uh, okay, so baptismal regeneration was to have some credibility. Would there not need to be a bunch of folks claiming to have been born again when they were baptized? People do actually claim this. Do people actually claim this? Thank you, psych man. I appreciate your question. Um, yeah, there are people who claim it. They claim that the miracle of salvation happened at the moment of baptism and that they experienced it and that they received the Holy Spirit when they came out of the water. The problem is the Bible doesn't teach this. The overwhelming evidence of the Bible is that you believe. It says it over and over again, like John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It doesn't say believe and be baptized. It doesn't say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever is baptized will not perish, but have everlasting life. There's never a passage like that. The Bible says, believe and be baptized and you shall be saved. The Bible says often believed and you shall be saved, but the Bible never says be baptized and you shall be saved. Baptism is something that follows belief and should follow it for every Christian, but it's not salvation. The Seventh-day Adventists believe in baptismal regeneration. The assembly, uh, um, excuse me, the um, Church of Christ believes in baptismal regeneration. There is a way in which the Catholic Church does, the Anglican Church, Orthodox churches. So this is a large group of people that believe that the act of baptism actually saves you, but it's not biblical at all. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, I think. We have been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul said in first, Paul said in one of the books of, of Corinthians, uh, to the Corinthians, he said that he hadn't baptized any of them and then he named some people he baptized. For God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. If the gospel were baptism, if you were saved, regenerated, the moment that you were baptized, then Paul would have never have said, he did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He would have said, he sent me to baptize, but to, to preach the gospel, which is baptism. But he didn't say that. He said, and, and he said the, 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 that the gospel is the power of God into salvation in Romans chapter one. So baptismal regeneration, although there are people that try to believe it, and I think the pull, the desire for wanting to believe this is that you are doing something. There's some pride to it. When you talk to someone who believes in baptismal regeneration, I can't paint with a broad brush, but my experience has been they're very prideful. They're like, well, we've been saved because we've been baptized. And it's like, well, the Bible doesn't say that. They point out a passage that says, we have an anti-type which saves us, baptism, but, there, but baptism in the Bible simply means immersion. And we are immersed, we are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. So it's not talking about water baptism there at all. It was talking about the ark. It was an anti-type baptism being immersed in Christ that saves us. And so when you begin to look at their few passages, like in Acts chapter two, where it says, be saved for the remission, be baptized for the remission of sins. That word for can also be because. Be baptized because of the remission of sins. That is, your sins are forgiven, therefore be baptized. When you look at the totality of Scripture, and there's a plethora of passages that talk about believe and be saved, and there's three or four passages that they make, and they're kind of a little bit cloudy, but they make them say baptism and salvation. When you compare them to the rest of them, there's no doubt that you have to say, we are saved by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ. And if you have never done that, you can commit your life to him today. You can believe in him and be saved and he will transform you. He will adopt you into the family and make you a child of God. If you would but believe on him right now and then find a place to go and be baptized as a symbol of your old man being buried. Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. So as the old man being buried, you're going under the water and then coming out of the water in the newness of life that God has given. So thank you very much, psych man. I appreciate that. We have another question from fact check these hands. Good to see you. Fact check these hands. See if I can get your, your, uh, uh, question here a little larger. What was it about Moses that made God to decide to reveal his face to him? Well, that's a good question. 
fact check these hands? It's a good question because it doesn't have an easy answer. What is it about God choosing Abraham to be a friend to Abraham? Out of all of the people that were on the earth, to call a 75-year-old man that's in a family that is in idolatry and to call him to Canaan and to establish a nation through Abraham. What is it about Moses that was saved at a time when they were killing babies, was saved miraculously, then became the deliverer of Israel, also killed a man, also was a murderer in trying to deliver them and had to flee, was raised in Egypt and then sought God. I don't know whether it was anything specific about Moses or whether it was God wanting to use Moses to reveal something about himself. And remember that when God revealed himself to Moses, he put him in the cleft of the rock covered his hand and then passed by so that what Moses saw was the air that God had passed by and it was full of glory. Just where God went by, it was full of glory. What an amazing thing. Uh, I don't think that we could say a Mos Moses was this amazing person and that's why God revealed himself to him. Why did God call me? Why is God calling you? Fact check these hands. Why has God used you? Because God has used you. Why has he used you? Is it because there's something special in you? Are you a special person? That God sees your specialness and then uses you? Or is it that God reveals his glory by using people? Everyday average people. And there's no one, including Moses, who stands up in the Bible without flaws. The closest we get is Daniel, Joseph, and Samuel but they had flaws as well. You can dive close into their lives and you can see that they had flaws as well. It seems that there are those that God chooses and loves and maybe it's an honesty, maybe it's a sincerity. I don't think it's works or skills, but I think that when you say, Lord, I really wanna serve you. I don't wanna pretend. I don't wanna be a hypocrite. I don't wanna do it so people will see me. I want to do it because I love you and I want to know you. Help me to love you more. I think when we can serve God out of that kind of a sincerity, that there's a real power with that. And maybe that's what it was about not only Moses, but what about Samson that had all of these problems? Was there something in Samson where he cried out to God and that's why God used him? Was there something in in, in other people in the Bible, like David. David had his share of problems, but he also had faith. He trusted and believed God. And maybe that's one of the keys as well. Maybe Moses had faith in believing and trusting in whom God was and what God was all about. And so God honors faith. It's impossible to please him without faith. Maybe simply believing allows God to be able to bless you. We know that we receive the promises of God through faith and patience. And so if I were to, as I've talked my way into this answer, if I were to look at why Moses was used by God, it's because he believed God. God called him, God spoke to him, God had to persuade him, but Moses believed and eventually obeyed the things that God, reluctantly obeyed the things that God had said and God used him. And if you'll have faith too, if you'll believe what God says, if you believe that he fills you with the Holy Spirit and uses you and empowers you, then you can be used by God as well. I do believe that sincerity is important. Believing him, trusting him, living for him. God, you say it, I'll do it as I surrender my life to you. I think that's really, really important. All right, so thank you very much. Fact check these hands. I really think that I kind of talked my way around to finally get to the answer that the Bible says about faith. So um, I appreciate that. Uh, let's see what, what next question we have. We have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, question, is it true that the Holy Spirit and Jesus sit at the right hand of the Father and the left when the disciples argued about who was sitting at the right and left hand? Thank you. All right, so the disciples want to set at his right and left hand. James and John bring their mommy to Jesus and says, she says, can I ask you something? He says, what? She says, that my sons would be able to set at the right and left hand, your right and left hand. 
He says, that's not up to me. It's up to my father to decide who will set up my right and left hand. So on the throne, we know that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the father. There, the Bible passage tells us that. When Stephen is stoned, it says that he looked up and saw the son of man standing by the right hand of the father. So he was standing up to receive the first martyr of the church as if to receive all martyrs who are going to give their lives for Christ, that Jesus is standing up for them. I don't know, uh, Jari, that it ever says that the Holy Spirit sits on his left side. If there is a passage like that, if you know of a passage like that, then I'd love to know it, but I don't know of one. I don't know that it ever says that the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits are before the throne and seven is the number of completeness. And that would be the, the complete aspect of the Holy Spirit before the throne of God. It could be the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit before the throne of God. But I don't know that it ever says on the throne. Again, I'm going to say what I always say here. I could be wrong. Uh, there could be a passage that puts the Holy Spirit on the throne that I just am not aware of right now, but I don't think so. And um, so talking about sitting at the right and left hand of Jesus is different than talking about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Sitting in the right and left hand of Jesus would be in the kingdom. Remember, James and John and James and John's mom thought Jesus was coming to establish the kingdom. And so that would be the kingdom here on earth, what we would call the millennial period. And so who's going to sit at his right and left hand during that time? I don't know. I think someone will. I don't know. We're going to rule with him, but I don't know who it's going to be. I know I don't want to be like those guys and ask, can it be me, Lord? Can it be me? I, I think I'll be ruling somewhere way out back. And I think that's what we ought to be thinking and just allow God to do whatever God's going to do. So um, thank you, Jari. I appreciate your question. And uh, somehow, Jari, by the way, you got to the millennium even without bringing up the millennium, sitting at the right and left hand of God. I know you like the millennium. All right, so we have a question from Dan. Dan, good to see you. Dan says, um, when we interact with people who follow God, we get chastened and rebuked by men for doing good. What does God say about those that, that um, something us, how are we to respond and take that. I'm curious as to what God thinks about this. All right. Um, so let me just think and see if I can get your question right. When we interact with people who follow God, so we're interacting with other Christians, we get chastened and rebuked, and then they, they rebuke you for whatever reason they think they're rebuking you. What does God say about that? And how are we to respond? All right, Dan, thank you. Let me go ahead and talk about that. Um, so, we as believers should be encouraging one another. We should rarely rebuke someone. And when we take the place of rebuking someone, we ought to make sure we really know what we're talking about and do it in the spirit of love and do it when there's a real problem. Jesus talked about being a hypocrite with a plank in your eye, taking a speck out of someone else's eye. The Bible says in the book of Galatians, if someone is in sin, you who are spiritual, go to such a one, considering yourself with a spirit of gentleness, lest you also be tempted. So there's supposed to be the spirit of gentleness. And a lot of times we don't have that. People just feel like, well, just kind of in pride are rebuking Christians without considering themselves. And in doing this, I believe that you're heaping condemnation on yourself. We are not condemned in Christ, neither is there condemnation in Jesus Christ, but we are judged the way we judge. The Bible even says that when we correct someone, that we are to do it in a spirit of meekness and gentleness. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, the Bible says, but be gentle to all, able to teach, correcting those who are in opposition. So when someone comes to you, Dan, and they feel like they're going to take that role of an authority over you, and rebuke you for whatever it is that, that you're doing wrong, if they don't do it in a spirit of gentleness and meekness, then I don't think it's, it's correct. I think it needs to be a spirit of gentleness and meekness. 
And I think there needs to be something really, really wrong to be able to rebuke somebody. And, I, and I've heard a lot of people taking authority and rebuking people when they have no right to. I've seen it in Christianity and it's wrong. We shouldn't be doing it. We should be lovingly correcting, living as examples, not lording over people, even for those who were laboring and doing the things that God had called us to do as pastors, we're to be examples and not to lord over the flock. We're not to gomer pile people. Shame, shame, shame. You bad Christians. We're supposed to encourage, to be like Barnabas who was a great encourager and we want to be an encourager. So how do you respond? I would respond in a humble way. When someone comes to rebuke me, I want to listen. I want to say thank you. I want to see if there's any criticism that could be true in it. And then I want to go to God. And if somebody comes to me to rebuke me angry, then I don't accept the rebuke. I'll stop them. I'll say, this is not in the spirit of love. You can say anything to me. I tell people, look, you can say anything you want to me. Just be nice. Just be kind. Just have love when you're saying it. And then I'll respond and we can go our separate ways. I can see if I believe that it's what God wants and you can go on knowing that you've shared with me what God has laid on your heart to be able to share. But if it's done in rudeness, meanness, screaming, yelling, I've literally stopped people. You can't say, I'm not taking anymore. I'm stop. I'm not going to take this anymore because it's not in the spirit of love. They said, you're not going to let me finish. And I was like, yeah, you can finish if you can do it in love. And I've had people come back and apologize to me because they didn't have the spirit of love. Not very many. Most of the time they storm off angry. I had one guy started yelling at me. I told him to stop. I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to listen to him. He went halfway back down the aisle, then turned around and came back up. And I was like, nope, nope. I'm not listening to you now. I'm not accepting anything that you have to say in the spirit that you're doing it. We're supposed to love one another and you can say whatever you want to say if you can do it in love. And so if someone's saying something to you in love and they're telling you, Dan, I don't know what kind of things they're trying to rebuke you for. Maybe they're like, how often do you read your Bible? And you're like, I, well, I don't know. I, I read it. Maybe not daily, but I read it. And they go, oh, you should read your Bible every day. Real Christians read their Bible every day. What kind of a Christian are you? So you take that and you go, you know, I should read my Bible more. Thank you for, for bringing that up. I appreciate that. And I, I hope you read the Bible as much as you say it. <laughs> I'd have a hard time not coming back to a person that tried to lord over someone in such a way, that tried to take the position of authority that didn't have gentleness, meekness, and kindness. So you should respond as humbly as you possibly can. And this is going to honor Christ when you respond humbly, when someone is taking that position with you. It must be someone that you know, that thinks that they're spiritual and that they have the right to be able to speak that way to others. May, may I also say one more thing to you, Dan? Are you perhaps being touchy? Then maybe someone's really sharing something with you that is genuine and that you're being touchy, you're a little bit sensitive about it. I'm not saying you are, I'm just asking this question. So that you are not open to it and it feels like an offense to you when maybe they're coming to you and saying, hey, I noticed you doing this and I don't think you should be. Like maybe me correcting people now about doing it in love rather than out of the flesh or out of anger, they might be upset at me. They may take it wrong. They might be sensitive to it instead of receiving what the Bible would say about being gentle and tender, they are upset and get offended. So think of the possibility that maybe you do have that in your life. I think Bill Bright, who was the head of Campus Crusade for Christ, used to say, in every criticism, there's a little nugget of truth. And so we look for that little nugget of truth out there. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, Dan, uh, we have another question from Matt. Um, Matt says, question, what, who are the trees of the garden that are being uh, referred to in Ezekiel 31, 9, 16 and 18? All right. Well, I, I know what passage you're talking about. 
Let me go ahead and get to my Bible here. And let's take a look. I don't know that I'm going to be able to answer your question. I'm trying. I'm, I'm racking my brains now to remember that passage. It's, it's an analogy. I'm trying to remember exactly what the analogy is. But let's get there and we'll take a look. So 31.9. I'll go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. Um, I'm just going to take a moment here. So this is, I'm just going to bring it up here in the, in, in the front. I'll kind of go uh, move around here a little bit. Let's just read the beginning of the chapter. This is Ezekiel 31. Now it came to pass in the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to his multitude. So this is a word of a prophecy against Egypt. And then it says, whom are you like in your greatness? Indeed, Assyria was the cedars in Lebanon with its branches that shaded the forest and high in stature. It is the top among the thick boughs. So he starts using trees as an analogy to the greatness of, these king of this kingdom. Let's see if we can figure out anything else here. Yep, where it was planted and um, therefore its height was exalted above the trees of the field. So it's, it's using trees as an analogy to the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of Egypt. Um, and still doing that in verse 6, the birds and the branches and the shadows of the trees. Um, and so then we get to verse 8. So he's talking about trees and he's comparing this to kingdoms and talking to the kingdom of Egypt about them being like a tree. And then he says, I made it beautiful with a multitude. Let's see if I can come back and find it, get the, the context a little better. Um, okay, the cedars in the garden of God could not hide. The fir trees were not like the boughs, its boughs. And the chestnut trees were not like its branches. Nor no tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. I made it beautiful with a multitude of branches. So here's your passage. So that all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. So we are humanizing trees at this point, trees that are in the garden. Doesn't mean that the trees had the real feeling of envy, but that God had made a, a, a beautiful, I made it beautiful. So uh, no tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. Let's see, go back and see if we can see which trees talk about. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide it. Let's go back and see if we can find out what the reference is. This was a beautiful in greatness and length of branches, but its roots reached abundant water. The cedars of God could not hide it. Still haven't found it. Let's go back a little bit more. Um, and the birds of the heaven made their nest in the boughs under the branches of the beasts of the field brought forth their young and the shadows of the great nations made their home. Thus it was beautiful in greatness. Mm, okay. Um, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to go back in its context and find out where, where there's this, what reference it's making to these trees, to what exact tree was there that the other trees envied that were there. And I don't want to take time now to go back and reread it all. Uh, but I believe that it, it is an analogy. God's using an analogy of the trees in the garden and maybe the tree of life. I, I need to go back and read it from the beginning uh, to try to figure out exactly what he's talking about. Maybe in 16 and 18, there's some clarity. Let me just go back. We'll, we'll throw them up on the screen here and read them. And if we can't figure that out, we'll, um, we'll look at it again later. All right, Matt? So let me just put this back up on the screen. This is uh, verse 16. Uh, it says, I made the nation shake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to hell together with those who descended to the pit and all the trees of Eden, the choice of the best Lebanon, all the drink uh, water were confined to, the, confined to the depths of the earth, went down to hell in it. Um, yeah, I need to do some work on this chapter. All right, Matt, I really appreciate your question, but it's just one of those that I'm going to have to say, I don't have the answer to right now. I'd rather do that than, than kind of like come up with an answer that isn't proper, that isn't right. So 
it certainly is talking about something in an allegorical way. And um, I need to go back to the chapter to figure out exactly what that is. All right. So thank you very much for joining us and for your question, Matt. I really do appreciate it. All right. So we have a question from Empress Kimberly. Hello, Empress. How are you? Uh, do you think, um, do you think about how Adam and Eve looked before the fall in the garden? I bet they truly reflected God's image perfectly. Maybe that's why they lived so long in that time. Well, that's interesting. Um, I can say, first of all, that I haven't thought about what Adam and Eve looked like before the fall. Was there a physical transformation when they fell? I don't know. I don't know if there's a passage in the Bible that says that. We know that they died spiritually. We know that they fell into sin and that in the garden was the first lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that the fruit had all of those. It looked good to make one wise. Um, it had all three of those in it. Um, do I think that's connected to why they lived so long? No, I don't. Because they lived long until the flood. And after the flood, God limited the days of man. And you can see that over a few generations, it got down to 120 years. And that God basically says, you know, 120 years is a limit and that man's going to basically live 75 years. And um, I'm just throwing out numbers I remember. And so if you're living longer than eight, 75 years, then you've gotten more out of life than what God said. And that there's a limit to some people living 120 years. Um, I don't know, the oldest person that's ever lived is not much above 120. There, there may be one or two, maybe it's a guideline, not an exact limit. And a lot of times for these people who are really elderly, I mean, up in their 110, 112, 115, a lot of times they don't have their exact birthday. I'm, I'm sure sometimes they do, but a lot of times they don't. So, um, no, I don't think that's connected. And I've never thought about what they look like and whether they change when they fall. I don't know if the Bible has anything that is really, that really reveals that. Again, I'm open to it. I'm open to find it. If you have um, anything that we could look at that would say that they changed physically when they fell into sin. <clears throat> All right. So thank you again, Kimberly, for your question. We have a uh, question here from Itza. Itza, it's good to see you. I'm struggling mightily with having to pray for the government whose every single action I despise. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. It's a, could you someday opine on what God's word says about respecting and honoring authorities? Yes, I could opine on it. Um, I wonder if I might not be able to bring up my notes from my study last Saturday. We, we talked about it. Let me just see if I can do that here real quick. I won't take long to try to see if I can pull these up because I'm not sure. I haven't really tried on here and what those notes would look like. Um, recents. Um, yeah, I'm not going to be able to. So there's basically three passages in the New Testament. There's Romans and there's Titus and Timothy. And you put these three passages together. They tell us that we are supposed to respect those that are in authority. And when Paul says that in Romans, in, in the book of Romans, Nero is the emperor. So it has nothing to do with the character or quality of the individual. We're supposed to respect their authority because God puts all authority in position and they're there to serve us so that we can live a quiet and peaceable life because God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is, we have our governments around us and we're able to live our lives and move in them so that we can share Christ with people around us. And then it says to pray for every king and authority and don't speak evil of them. Now, we live in a time where there's people constantly stirring the pot, constantly coming up with things that are outrageous and unbelievable and that upset us. One of the reasons we live in that time is because people are trying to get clicks and views. 
The more people that they can get to watch something, the more views they have on it, the more likes they have on it, they like. And so, one of the best ways to get people to vote is to get them riled up. One of the best ways to get people to click on something is to get them upset and riled up about it. They're going to like, they're going to subscribe, they're going to share, they're going to friend, you know, whatever else happens on, you know, these other channels that I don't really spend time on or these other um, social websites or social sites that I don't spend time on. Instagram, I don't spend much time on that. TikTok, don't spend any time on that. Um, Snapchat, again, Facebook, some, um, but I see it. They're trying to rile us up. And we should put our trust in God. And it doesn't, it's not that there aren't things that can be awful because there are. They came to Jesus and talked about Galileans whom Pilate mingled with their sacrifices blood. If that were in our day, it would be all over Facebook and YouTube and the news channels would be talking about it if they were against Pilate. They would, if they weren't, they would be quiet about it. But if they weren't against him, they would be riling people up about it. So what did Jesus do? Did Jesus say, yeah, that Pilate, what a horrible, awful guy. Yeah, those Romans, we shouldn't be following, listening to them. Yes, I hate them. Jesus didn't do any of that. He kind of gave us an example. He said, do you think that you're any more righteous than those that that happened to? But take heed lest it happen to you or worse happens to you. So he used this analogy that these awful things happen and that we want to make sure that we live our lives right so things like that don't happen to us. He said, or, or, or where the tower fell on those people. Were, were, they, you any more, or were they any more unrighteous than you? He refused to get sucked into it. And I try to live my life that way. I don't want to be sucked into these spectacular stories where I just get emotional about it, then start sounding off on it. And I do want to pray for, the pres for President Biden. I pray for his success when it comes to what's going to help the United States, so I qualify it. I wouldn't pray randomly for anyone's success, but I pray for their success when it's good for the United States of America, good for us to live peaceable lives, good for us to be able to share our faith. And I don't want to speak evil of him. And in this, I have to repent because I have. I haven't done it from the pulpit. I haven't done it in my Q and A's, but I have done it privately. And that's still speaking evil of someone. I'm just going to put him in God's hands and let God judge him. And I'm going to try, I try not to get worked up. You could ask my wife about this, that I just try not to allow the things that are, are printed or that are on the news to fire me up. There comes a point where I just don't want to watch it anymore. I don't want to hear it because I think the effect it's having on me is not a good effect. I want to be able to share Christ. That's my call. There's a lot of atrocities in this world. This world is a horrible place. People are doing to people unthinkable things all of the time. That's the world we live in. There's a lot of suffering. There's going to be suffering in the world. In this world, we're going to have tribulation and we are not called to make all things right. We're called to preach the gospel and to preach the gospel of Christ. And so it's uh, in the world that you're struggling mightily with the government and how you can pray for them. It's a matter of just being obedient to God's word. God says, don't speak evil about them. So don't speak evil about them. God says to pray for them. So pray for them. God says to pray that you could live a quiet and peaceful life because God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. So governments are put into their position so you and I can take the word of God and move freely and see people come to Christ and be saved. And this is kind of hard for some people to hear. I taught this last Sunday morning as we talked about render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Rome was doing all kinds of bad things with taxes. And Jesus didn't say, don't give your taxes because they're doing bad things with it. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We could say the same thing about money. Who's, whose face is on your money? Who's, it, says in, uh, it says the United States of America. Some of it in God we trust. I don't know if it still says that. I would, I would be surprised, but it might. But the United States of America. So we render our taxes unto, unto Caesar, unto the United States. They'll do things that we don't agree with. 
But Jesus didn't qualify his statement to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, even though the Roman government was evil and Tiberius during the days of Jesus was a decent enough uh, emperor, but Caligula, Nero, those that were, were during the times that Timothy, Titus, and Romans were written were not. And so we don't need the qualification. When a person is good or decent or agrees with us or is trying to do good things that are the right way or when somebody doesn't do, you know, go the wrong way and say the wrong things, then we're to respect them, pray for them and not speak evil against them. We're to do it no matter what. And so we just want to be able to be obedient to the Bible. This gives you, it's a, it gives you an opportunity to be obedient to the things that God has said in something that you don't want to do. So you don't agree with it. So you don't want to do it, but the Bible says to do it. And now you have an opportunity not to do what you wanted, not to be obedient to the word of God and doing something you want to do, but being obedient in doing something you don't want to do, which is to pray for the president of the United States. Lord, may you bless President Biden and his family. May he be successful in the areas that would help the United States and allow us to be able to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you allow him to be successful in those areas. And Lord, I pray that there would be no harm that would come to him. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. And that's how we're supposed to pray. And may we repent from cursing him. And I'll just encourage you, read your Bible more than you read uh, social media. Be careful you don't get sucked in. And a lot of, the, there, there, are, there are false stories that get people really riled up and they're just not true. And, and I, people have told me those stories often, or sometimes people have told me those stories and I immediately go, that's not true. And it's not. It's a false story that someone brought up. So you've got to be careful. And there are awful, horrible things that happen, but no one ever said that they weren't going to. No one ever said that in this world, we wouldn't have that happen. But we have a greater call than politics. We have a greater call than who we put in as government. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ who sets people free. And we're not the only one living in suffering and tribulation and difficulties. People all around us are. And once we start letting them know that there is a God who will comfort them and cares about them, rather than trying to argue with people about politics or being all caught up in the politics, I just think it becomes problematic. All right. And I'm sure there'll be people who are upset with me um, over that, but that's okay. Um, I, the Bible tells us to do that. And regardless of how people think or the day that we're living in, when there's such polarization, that's what we should do because the Bible tells us in those three different passages how we are to respond to government. All right. So thank you very much. We have a question from, is it Dreama? Dreama? Dreama. All right. I'm sorry if I butchered your name. I'm studying Titus 1, 16, verse 11. Titus 1, 16, verse 11. All right. So that's not correct, right? So that's a, a, that's a typo because there's not 16 chapters in Titus. So Titus 1 through whatever, um, verse 11, speaks of silencing false teachers. My question is, what is my role as a Christian woman in the rebuking and silencing of false teachers? Um, Gosh, I would love to go to that verse, but I'm not sure I'll be able to find it. Let me just see if I can find it. Um, silencing false teachers. Yeah, I'd love to find this verse because I'd love to see exactly what he's saying to him in context. And that's going to help us to know whether or not you have a role in silencing false teachers. All right, so I think I found it. Let's go ahead and bring this up on the screen. All right. Um, it says, um, let's go back to verse 10. This is an elder's task. So an elder is a pastor. Okay. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. These were legalists who are going around the Gentile churches 
and telling them that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved, that they had to keep the law, they had to keep the festivals, they had to keep the dietary laws. There are legalists around today that tell us that we have to keep certain laws in order to truly be saved, just like there were in their day. So that's the basic false teaching in, in Galatians, where Paul said, if anybody comes to you teaching you anything different than what you've already heard, let them be accursed. If we are an angel come to you with anything other than what you've heard, then let them be anathema. And he also says, I marvel so soon that you are turning from the gospel to another gospel that's not a gospel. And this is these, this legalist gospel, the same thing of the circumcision. And then it says, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things that they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Mm. So they're doing it not out of an open heart. One of, um, one of them, a prophet of their own said, Cretans always are evil beasts and gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke sharply that they may be sound in the faith. All right, so this is um, to the elders. It's, Timothy is a leadership book and it's to the elders that the mouths of those who teach such things should be stopped. And I will give you the way, uh, Driama, if that's how you say your name, I'll, I'll give you the way that we have dealt with this. Um, so here recently, we had a legalist who would come into our church, open up his Bible and sit at a table. Then when people would come up to him, they would ask him what he was reading and studying. They're just being nice. He would then go against the church and our teaching of faith and tell people that they had to teach the law, tell people that I'm a false teacher. So this was the legalist. He was of the circumcision and we had to stop his mouth. And so we did that by going to him and saying, we can't let you do this. We actually gave him some op opportunities to tell him, look, you're telling people things you should stop. You're bringing division. If you don't stop, we'll ask you to leave the church. He didn't think we had the authority to ask him to leave. So he kept doing it. And we found out he did it again. And then we found out he did it again. And so finally we went to him and told him, we're going to ask you to leave. Not Matthew 18, but warn the divisive man once or twice and then remove him. We were stopping the mouth of the false teacher. And he thought we couldn't do it. And so he came back the next time. And I saw him and I went up, I said, you're not supposed to be here. He said, this is a public place. I can be here. I said, it's not a public place. It's a private place. Church is a private place and we can ask you to leave. And we have a police officer that's there in all of our services. We started doing that when church shootings years ago um, started to become something that happened fairly regularly in the United States. And um, so the police officer went back and she talked to him and she had to escort him out because he, he, he didn't want to go. Now, how can you take part in that? I would say the way you take part of it is by not giving in to false doctrine at all, not giving an ear to false doctrine, not listening to it by telling people when they're teaching something that is false, I don't want to hear it. You can shut their mouth by shutting your ears, by not giving them an opportunity, by not watching that video, that television program, um, that, you know, what, what, however it is that you're hearing that false teaching. I don't think you have a role, those who are not elders, in stopping them the way that an elder can. So our pastors at the church, our elders, have a specific role where they can take the authority of what's happening within our church, with what goes on on our platforms in diff different places. Like here, if somebody came on and began to, to put on comments and false teaching, we would block them. We would stop them. So I don't know that you have a role like the elders do in Titus, but you do have a role in which you don't have to appear it. And wherever you have authority, if you have authority, you have authority over your children, maybe you're in some ministry and you have authority in that ministry. So wherever you have authority, then you can stop the mouths of those who are teaching false doctrines. I think that's really important to do. All right. So thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. And um, yeah, we do need to stop the mouths of false teachers. All right, so we have a question from B. Stevens. Good to see you. Good to have you with us. I think this is your first question. We appreciate it. B. Stevens says, is it biblical for pastors to take a sabbatical? Biblical. Well, that's a specific question in itself. 
is it biblical for a pastor to take a sabbatical? So pastors will take sabbaticals. Um, I've never taken one, not because I don't think it's biblical, but because I don't want to. I just don't want to take three months off or six months off. Um, could I get to a place where I need to? Maybe. Sabbaticals are usually done for pastors to stop burnout. And being in the role of a pastor can be very difficult. There's a lot of responsibility and people can be very critical. It's just hard. It's just, you know, and that's why um, Charles Wendell said, if you can do anything else but be a pastor, do it. Because you got to have rhinoceros skin, you got to have a duck's back, you've got to be able to take what people bring your way. And so, does the Bible ever tell someone to take a sabbatical? No. But the Bible doesn't also, also doesn't forbid it. And so, I think that's important. You can't just take the silence of something and think because something is silent that that somehow is a positive towards it. And this happens a lot. Is it biblical to take a sabbatical? Does, well, does the Bible ever say it? No. But does that mean someone can't do it? No. I think that if someone needs that time off, and they've been doing something for a long time, well, you know, and, and, and the, the elders of the church or the board of directors, or if it's congregational driven, vote him a sabbatical, then let him take a sabbatical. And it's all good. Maybe he'll be refreshed and maybe he needs that time of refreshment. And you know, if someone's next to burnout, maybe they need it. And so those that are in authority, because there's always some kind of an authority in the church, even in the so-called Moses model, there are those that are in authority over that person. And if those in authority feel like it's, they, this person needs to take a sabbatical, three months, six months, a year, whatever, and they want to do that and have his position open for him when he comes back, then they can do that. And I wouldn't question that at all. I don't think there's ever a time that says that a pastor can't do it. I think there are different circumstances, different situations. We don't know everything that everybody's going through. So I think the literal answer to your question is sabbaticals aren't biblical in the sense of taking months or a year off but I don't see a problem with it. That just because the Bible's silent on something doesn't mean you can't do it. Is it biblical to drive a car? Well, it's never in the Bible it says you can drive a car. See, so you see, that's kind of my argument. I know that's absurd. I've gone to the absurd to make a point, but nevertheless, um, if we're looking for things to always be in the Bible, we're going to run into some trouble. If what we're looking for is for the Bible to preclude it, does the Bible say a pastor can't take a sabbatical? That's really what we're looking for. And the Bible does give a lot of restrictions on pastors and on leaders. All right. So we're going to take one more question. Thank you very much, uh, B. Stevens, for your question. I appreciate that. We're going to take one more question. Um, and this is from Cecilia. And this will be our last question for today. Cecilia says, why were there some books removed from the Bible? Also, who is Lilith? All right. Thank you, Cecilia. I appreciate that. Um, the answer to this, Cecilia, is there were no books removed from the Bible. The canon of Scripture was not chosen by anyone. It was not chosen and voted on in any council. When you go back into the New Testament, you start to see them talking about certain books that are Scripture. Peter talks about Paul's writings being Scripture, and they're hard and that people twist. And then within the early part of the second century, this would be 125, 130. You see them beginning to get the 27 books of the New Testament together. And the acceptance of Old Testament scripture being the same that the Jews accepted. So in the Catholic Bible, there's the Apocrypha, but they were not accepted by the Jews. And we have accepted what the Jews accepted as scripture. And then we start to see very early on in church history that people began treating certain books of the Bible like they treated the Old Testament. So they were treated as scripture until there finally was a list that was treated as scripture. And then it was considered, are all these books scripture and should they be scripture? A little bit later on, the Apocrypha was added in. And 
I'm not sure of the complete history of the Apocrypha, but I know that it was not part of the early church and what they had received. A lot of it is Old Testament passages. Um, so the canon was more recognized than it was chosen. That's a very important distinction. It was more recognized by leaders than anybody chose it. Lilith. Um, somewhere in the Apocrypha books, it talks about Lilith being the first wife of Adam. Um, I don't believe it's true at all. All right. Um, I think it is a fable, an ancient fable, and not true at all. All right. So hopefully that's helpful. So thank you very much for joining us on uh, Truth Quest Podcast. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this Q&A. I hope that God has spoken to you. Uh, we will have another Q&A on Saturday. It will be connected to our study tonight on Abba Father and what that really means. The, the surprising thing that Abba Father really means. So if you join us for our study and you have some questions, write down your question, then you can ask them to us at the next uh, Q&A. So God bless you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Love you. I hope that God moves powerfully in your life. Um, may you shine as a light, as a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden because that's who God has chosen you to be. All right. God bless you guys. I'm going to go ahead and sign out. We will see you later on.